0: This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business.
1: Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, DC. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast@spymuseum.org. at That's spycast@spymuseum.org. at Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, Please take a minute and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make Spycast better, and you can help. For the final time, I will say we are joined today by Dr. Andrew Hammond, the new and incoming historian and curator of the International Spy Museum. I am moving on to new opportunities elsewhere. I will still be probably quite heavily involved uh, with the museum. Uh, but for now, let me take this chance to introduce to you uh, my replacement, uh, historian number five in the long lineage, uh, I would say that, you know long and distinguished, but let's not get ahead of ourselves, lineage of spy museum historians, Dr. Andrew Hammond. He has his PhD in diplomatic history from the University of Warwick, where he took a deep dive into US policy in Afghanistan from 1979 until today. He's also a veteran of the Royal Air Force where he worked in several different intelligence related capacities. He comes to us after finishing his stint as a fellow at the Library of Congress. And before that, two years as a mellow public humanities fellow at the National September 11th Memorial Museum. There's a lot more to Andrew, but that's why we're here. So we'll let the conversation draw those things out. So welcome, Andrew. Welcome to the museum. Welcome to the job. Uh, Thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Thanks,
2: Vince. Uh, I should point out that it was Mellon Fellow, not Mellow Fellow, but I will take Mellow Fellow. You know what? <laughs> we haven't done one good. of these in person in a while. Mellon Public
1: Fellow. There you go. They should call it the Mellow Fellow. That'd be, that'd be even better. <laughs> exactly. I'll write them a letter. Probably. Exactly. <laughs> um, so let, let's start in, in, not in chronological order, let's go out of chronological order for a little bit. Um, I want to talk to you about grad school, because when I entered grad school, I had a general idea of what I wanted to study. I knew I wanted to study kind of the confluence of nuclear weapons and intelligence. But beyond that, you know, I went in there with high hopes and changed my very specific subject multiple times before I finally landed on what I wrote my dissertation on. So I want to know what got you interested in U.S. foreign policy, in CIA and intelligence policy, and of course, why Afghanistan? Or kind of walk us through that path that many people out there who are grad students today are probably experiencing that real time as we speak. Okay. Well, thanks for the kind introduction.
2: Um, and I'm thrilled to be starting at the Spy Museum. So grad school, how did I end up studying what I'm studying? So basically it goes back to a darkroom on September the 11th, 2001. I was in the dark room. My colleague came and said to me, you have to see what's happened. I thought to myself, okay, here we go. It's going to be some banal thing. Um, He looked really ashen. I was like, what the heck is going on? I walked through to a room where we had BBC News on, uh, just running constantly in the background. And the first tower had been struck. So we're there watching this TV. Uh, I'm in this uh, G2 intelligence section at the time. Um, And then the next thing, the second tower struck. So at that moment, I guess we all knew in one way or another that our lives would be affected. For me, it led to a really deep desire to try to understand where that event came from. Like, I guess I used to joke with my students that my uh, academic career began with a WTF question. (laughs) What the heck is going on? Um, How did this happen? Um, And to me, the most powerful route into that was through history, was through the study of the past. Um, I've always been a lover of history, but history... Helped me to contextualize and understand that event. Um, so while I was so I was actually in Germany at the time. Um, uh, so for um, military history buffs like us, it was it was a fascinating place to be. It was the former headquarters of the British Army of the Rhine. It was the former headquarters of RAF Germany, of the Second Allied Tactical Air Force, of the Northern Army Group. I was there, obviously, after the Cold War ended, but it was still a fascinating place to be and to think about all the history that had preceded um, me being there. Um, And one of the great things about that post was that the library there, because it was a number of different headquarters, and at the time the ARC was there, the Allied Rapid Reaction Corps, so the, the headquarters library was phenomenal, and I basically... Just consumed everything I could get my hands on to try to work out what was going on in the world, Um, and ultimately uh, it led to me leaving the service in 2005, just because this this kind of desire to understand it was almost like a sickness. Mm -hmm. It was almost like a it was like something I couldn't turn off, and. I'm sure I would have had a very happy and fulfilling career if I had have stayed in the Royal Air Force but I just it came to that stage where I thought you only get one chance at life you should do what really compels you and drives you um so I went back to school um and from there I have been on the journey that has led me here today <laughs> um so my PhD topic was really a way to put 9-11 in a much deeper historical context. So I compared and contrasted uh, the Soviet-Afghan war with the war on terror, and 9-11 was the pivot. So really, sometimes I think about this, that period between the North Tower being struck and the South Tower being struck, It's it was almost like this moment that People at the time did not know that they were living through, but the tectonic plates of of world politics and of of world history were shifting beneath our feet. And the realization that they had shifted only happened when that second tower was struck. So for me, it it was really a way to answer this kind of deeper question about what was going on
1: in the world. Well, I mean, this is, this is recent history. I mean, we, we both lived through it. I mean, most of people listening to this lived through it as well. I mean, we do we have some younger listeners, but man, I guess the scary part now is you could be <laughs> essentially in college and go, what, 9-11? I don't remember that. Um, were you worried when you started that you'd run into classification issues? You'd run into issues of people not willing to talk to you since some of its oral history involved in this. But, you know, even with my topic, doing nuclear weapons policy, moving into the 1960s, and even late 50s, you run into classification issues. You're dealing with the 2000s. You're dealing with the 90s. You know, you know the, the, the most, you know, the most ancient you're going essentially is 79, right? So is this something that kind of you saw as a potential roadblock going in? Yes, I
2: I did. I guess like most graduate students, there was a degree of naivety Um I mean, I knew that a lot of stuff would not be accessible. Um, but do you know what? That's I think that was one of the things that I... Or, uh, and it is one of the things that I find fascinating about studying intelligence, you know, the, the wilderness of mirrors. Um, how can we surmount or get around or work within the constraints that there are when you study intelligence? So even for people that are studying stuff that happened 50 years ago, 70 years ago, there are still problems. Um, When you're looking at the late 1970s, the early 80s, there's obviously more problems. So I guess I had some idea that there would be issues there, but I just tried to come up with creative solutions to get around it. So formal research, the Carter administration, there was more stuff than there was for Reagan, with Reagan, there was more mm. stuff than there was for H.W. Bush and so on down to the present day. So I just had to think, how can I get around this? And ultimately, what, was the quest- what were the questions that I was trying to address? Some of them relied on information that was in the archives. Some of the other questions could be answered in different ways or through different routes. So as you mentioned, one of them was by speaking to people that were involved as a way to try to get around some of those problems.
1: This is a bit of a meta question, but whatever, we'll deal with it. Was there a worry, or is there still a worry, that it's not quote-unquote history yet? That really we haven't enough time to digest it, particularly the people that you're talking to, right? You want, How did you feel on this day? Well, maybe we know that, but have we had the chance to kind of really think about it? I mean, the, the 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 you know the policy side people are like yes if it was last week we've got plenty of time to think about it <laughs> historians we want to ruminate a little longer we want to kind of see if the Afghan war ended in two thousand five it'd be a whole other issue with the fact that we're still there and it's still not a solution there we still don't know what's going to happen is there a worry that you're kind of you know Getting across your 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 lane a little bit into the political science realm or into the international relations realm and not as much on the history side Okay, yeah, a good a
2: good question. Um, I think for me So my undergrad was in history and political science although. I mainly focused on international relations there definitely was a sense of using both of those subjects um in terms of my specific topic matter, um, I mean, this is a bigger question. What constitutes history, right? Um, so, I mean, I, when I was in the Air Force, I actually done this, this uh, open university course, um, mainly focusing on ancient history. And we looked at Herodotus, Thucydides, Thucydides Xenophon. So people that are routinely called depending on who you ask, the father or the fathers of history. And they done what would now be classified as contemporary history, or some people would even say political science. Um, Of course, I would never compare myself to any of those figures, but if it was good enough for them, you know, if speaking to people as a way to access information about the past was a good methodology for them... I was happy to um, deal with it too. Or we can even go more recently. Look at AGP, AGP Taylor's book on the Second World War. Mm-hmm. That was written barely 30 years afterwards. That was a, you know, a, a landmark book in the Second World War. Again, if it was good enough for AGP Taylor, oh. it was good enough for me. I think that for myself, the way that I approach questions of intelligence or questions of the past are... Just, I guess, problem-driven rather than process-driven. So what's the, what's the question that I'm asking of the world? If that means that I am looking at stuff that happened 300 years ago where you just can't speak to anyone that existed then, so be it. If it's something that happened last week, so be it. Um, if it's something that happened, you know, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, so be it, uh, so for me it's less driven by the process and more driven by the question um, but I would, you know again, anybody that says it's not history, I would say, look at Thucydides, look at AGP Taylor, and if they're not historians I don't know who
1: is Right <laughs> so, so your dissertation uh, your congratulations, it's it's being turned into a book that's coming out sometime soon Uh can you give a little information on that how how much did you have to tweak it to turn it into now it's a university press so it probably wasn't tweaked all of that much um but you know dissertations are very dry on purpose how much did you have to make it accessible to the public at least the academic public uh-huh
2: um yeah i think that this is a question that <laughs> anybody that's finished their phd that wants to turn it into a book has to face how do you de-thesisize it and how do you get out of that mode of thinking that you have been badgered and cajoled into because that that style of thinking is good and it's important but it doesn't necessarily make for a great monograph it doesn't make for a great book so for me to be honest I ended up losing about 50,000 words so at the beginning um, you know, I was because of the I guess because of the nature of my dissertation, it ended up involving me reading a lot of different literatures. So it wasn't very clean and neat. Here's this gap, here's this area I'm addressing, here's this one body of literature, okay, that's it, it's all neat. It ended up being quite messy in some ways, and a lot of the dissertation was just trying to make sense of that mess um and a lot of that i guess it, re- it reminded me of doing fractions as a kid so when you do fractions the teacher wants to see how you got to the figure that you've arrived at how have you done all the work right, show your work exactly right. long division yeah. so a lot of the beginning of the phd was just showing my work here's how i got to where i got to but for a book you know, that's, that's
1: kind right. Of not right One of my advantages was there was almost no historiography in my topic, which meant I didn't have to, like, waste the first, like, 70 pages of my dissertation talking about all this stuff. And so that was very easy to do. But when you have so much that's been written about just by itself, just the CIA in Afghanistan in the 1980s, and then, of course, after 9-11 and everything else, it had to have been... You kind of had the opposite problem I did, where I had, literally had zero things to look at except for one or two very badly written books. You had just this deluge. You had the fire hose. I had the trickle.
2: Yeah, and both of them present their own problems. Right. Um, and for any for any grad students that are listening, that's that's part of the the. I guess that's part of the trick of getting to where you need to go to. What's the particular situation that I am facing? Is it a deluge or is it a trickle? And what are the particular problems that are involved in that? And how do I get to where I need to get to? And that can take years, of
1: course, to get through all of that. Yeah, I mean, a lot of ca- like I'm sure in your case, it was like there's hundreds and hundreds of things written on this, but how they missed this very straightforward basic issue that you kind of where's that gap that you focused on for me it was like why is no one looking at this (laughs) and he kind of you you both are in a position where I was in disbelief I'm like someone has to have written this already someone has to have done this already and I'm sure again you probably were thinking the same thing like is this my birthday I mean it's like how has no one written what is kind of one of the most obvious things
2: yeah absolutely and um You know, we've we've been speaking about some of the challenges of this, of of, of research and of making sense of all the information, but I'm sure you, um, you know, would agree with me here. There's a real thrill in um, coming, you know, dealing with information that no one's really looked at before or looking at documents in a new way or through a fresh, a fresh lens. I remember... So the first time I I had a fellowship at the Library of Congress was in 2011. And I remember looking through the papers of William Odom. And he was the the director of the NSA back in the 80s. But before that, he was the military attaché to Brzezinski, Jimmy Carter's National Security Advisor. And I remember coming across some of his record cards. And he didn't write one for every day. but for important days, he had written a record card. And I remember coming across one group of the record cards with an elastic band that was frayed and, and, and moulding. And it was obvious because as soon as I touched it, it fell apart. So it was obvious that nobody had looked at this before. And I remember opening that up with my hands literally shaking with excitement. And I came across the record card for the 25th of December, 1979, which was the day that the Soviets invaded Afghanistan. And I remember just being so thrilled to come across this. And I guess just to go back to one of your earlier questions, if the information is not in the National Archives or at the presidential libraries, one of the interesting things to do is just to think laterally, well, how can I get around this? Or how can I access interesting information um, that doesn't necessarily lie in an NSC memo or something?
1: Well, I, I mean, I had to do that several times. I mean, positions where people wrote letters that involved, for instance, how much plutonium you need to get critical mass, <laughs> right? That's still classified. Right? You never, you know, there's a letter that lays that out that you're never going to see. No, None of us are going to see. Our kids aren't going to see it. Our grandkids aren't going to see it. But 20 people wrote about the letter. And so essentially, you can find what the letter says in 20 different letters other places. Mm -hmm. I still don't know the exact number, so don't get on me about that. (laughs) But I know everything else that was in that letter, which is really what I was looking for Mm. in the first place. But I had a similar experience where I was in the microfilm for some of these old documents. And there were areas within the microfilm that they clearly had pulled out stuff, pulled up stuff. He has a classification. And I realized when I looked at it closely, no one else had done this. When I looked at it closely, they pulled it out in 1972. And I don't know, I'm probably not the last person to look at the microfilm, but I'm the first person to look at the microfilm and go, this was classified in 1972. I wonder if it's still classified in 2012 or whatever year it was. And so when I went and they're like, it shouldn't be, so FOIA request later, all of a sudden I have all this stuff no one's ever seen. And in that case, it was the handwritten personal notes of the guy who cleared everybody from the Manhattan Project. Wow. Like, basically, it's, you know, if anyone's on a security clearance, there's a guy who sits there and asks me all these questions, it's his handwritten notes from And I'm like, Yahtzee, right? I mean, I found something (laughs) that probably no one had looked at since the people were cleared for the Manhattan Project. So that wasn't my focus, but it was a cool little thing I could add to Mm. the process. Um, When it comes to the book, though, uh, when is it coming out, number one? Uh, Number two, were you able, between the time that you wrote your dissertation, which is now a couple of years ago and actually the book, are you already like wanting to like write a coda to it? Like is there already enough stuff that's happened in Afghanistan and with US foreign policy that you already like want to change the ending a little bit? Um. Yeah, I, do,
2: I don't want to change the, 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 the ending. I think that the overall conclusions that I get to still hold. Um, but the... The current administration, um, you know, presidential administration has been a little bit of an outlier in in various ways. So I think that that's something that I'm going to have to address Um, in terms of when it's coming out. It's coming out next year. Um, It's with Edinburgh University Press who... um, actually written, you know, actually quite a few interesting books on intelligence have came out with them in the past few years, they're building up a good catalogue and it's going to be released in hardback and paperback um, but the overall conclusions are still the same but I will just address some of the stuff that's happened in between but it's not a kind of um, it's not a foreign affairs article we're at the end, I have policy prescriptions and you know, here's what's happened. It's more of a you know, even even looking comparing and contrasting the Soviet Afghan war with the war on terror, even both of them I try to place within a broader reading of of American history. So it's not just okay the clock has started in nineteen seventy nine. I try to contextualize both of them within the Cold War and then I try to contextualise the Cold War within America's strategic trajectory since really the foundation of the Republic right. from from 13 colonies with a tenuous foothold on the eastern seaboard to a transcontinental superpower that, you know, yeah, we don't need to get into any more but, you know, Amer- if you want to know the world at present, it's helpful to study the United States. We'll be right back after this.
0: And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI,
1: That was a wonderful euphemism you used saying that the current administration is somewhat of an outlier. I know you're talking specifically about Afghan policy but yes. Um, Let me ask about your time in the Royal Air Force because you were involved in several capacities doing intelligence work. Was this always the idea of joining the RAF and doing intel work or was there an idea of joining the RAF and doing other things? I I think that there was an idea of joining the
2: RAF more generally um, I used to work next to someone who was in the Royal Air Force and they spoke to me about it and I was always interested in it I was always interested in the military um, my mother's two uncles uh, both of them died in the Second World War one of them is buried in Yokohama in Japan um, he was captured at the fall of Hong Kong on Christmas Day 1941 The other one is buried now in uh, Chittagong in Bangladesh and I've always wanted to go, I've still never managed to do it, I've always wanted to go to put some flowers down at their graves because no one with a blood connection as far as I know has ever been there to pay their respects so I guess for me I was born in 1974 and it might sound weird to some any younger listeners but it was it was interesting the way that the Second World War was still the the backdrop against which I grew up, the toys I played with, right. the comics I read, the movies I watched. So I guess there was always an interest in the military. There was there was an interest in the Royal Air Force specifically um, because of the the person that I used to work next to, and then in terms of intelligence, it was you know I guess it was like most boys i guess there was always an interest in that as
1: well yeah i mean it's one of those fun things where you think you know 30 years ago from now is basically the end of the cold war right so the the i remember the wall coming very very clearly remember the wall coming down well you and i were born 30 years after the end of world war 2 so for though yeah you know, it's one of these you don't think of it that way right i mean world war 2 seems like so long ago but for even people in their 40s and 50s, you know, when we were born. So, like, our age, when we were born, had a memory of the Second World War. And that's, you know, one of those kind of things where you have to kind of retell that to yourself that the history is not that ancient. Um, I mean, we're at the point now where it's getting pretty ancient when you have a 75th anniversary mm-hmm. this year of the end of the war. there There aren't a whole lot of people who are still alive, but we're now aging ourselves and talking about, <laughs> you know, 40-plus years ago it was there's still relatively young people who had even fought in the Second World War. Mm -hmm. Um, Let let me ask you about your museum work, because I think this kind of ties directly into that concept and that question of experience and other things. Um, You did some oral history for your dissertation and for your degree. Uh, You probably did a lot more when you ended up at museum, particularly at the 9-11 museum. Oral history is something that some people love, some people hate, it's poo-pooed by some. Uh, you obviously have to take it with a grain of salt because you're talking to somebody who has a dog in the fight and giving you the best version of mm-hmm. themselves. Did you learn a lot more about oral history when you were at particularly like the 9-11 museum? About, because, I mean, that's going to come in handy here, too. You never know who's going to walk through the door mm-hmm. at this museum. you know. And, and we've done now, for anyone who's been to the New Spy Museum, there are dozens and dozens of films throughout the museum And part of what I spent time doing when we were opening was interviewing all these people that ended up in these films. And to me, that was one of the most fascinating things I've ever done is kind of sitting down and saying, all right, we may not use all of this. And you know, a two-hour interview turned into a three-minute film inside the museum, but we're gonna talk about everything anyway. And just getting a chance to kind of be with the person, watching them reminisce, watching them in some cases talking about things they haven't talked about in a long time, is that something that You know, you really focused on a lot during the 9-11 museum time period.
2: Yeah, so when I was at the 9-11 museum, I guess the the first thing to say was that it was uncanny that my academic career really began on 9-11, as I mentioned earlier. And then as a, a Mellon fellow there, I had a desk that overlooked Ground Zero. So for someone with an interest in history, it was very uncanny to be there looking at it every day. And the the project that I was working on when I was there, alongside doing stuff with the museum, was trying to tell the story of 9-11 and the war on terror by through the stories and voices of veterans of the military and intelligence communities. So if any, any listeners have ever came across Studs Terco's great book uh, The Good War and Oral History of World War Two, in some ways I was trying to do that for 9-11 and the War on Terror. So the story of these events is told uh, by presidents, by journalists by um many different types of people so i guess it was just a pretty humble attempt to say well let's see how the people that you know were involved in these events how how did they make sense of them how did they uh, live through these events so that's what i was working on when i was at the 911 museum um mainly interviewing veterans of those wars and trying to understand how how they made sense of them and, 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 and get a sense of their own stories. Um I think with oral history, you're right, some people are a little bit sniffy about it. Again, I would use the example of um people like Thucydides and Herodotus. Um but in some ways it depends what types of questions you're asking, right? And it depends what type of a historian you are. So let's let's say for example you're a political historian, um maybe you're going to pay more attention to the government archives. Um, if you're a cultural historian, maybe you have to look at different places for your information. If you're an oral historian, think of how liberating that is in some ways. Here are all these people who never left but who never left any trace behind who are not in the archives, who maybe were illiterate and never wrote letters, who um, were marginalised by society. So oral history grew out of that. Let's speak to people who historians traditionally ignored. But I think that it's also great just for getting information that doesn't exist in any archive, even if they are a Secretary of State, maybe... There's stuff that they haven't left behind in the archives. And the only way to get to that information is to speak to them. So to me, oral history is interesting. On a factual level, you can you can find out stuff that doesn't exist anywhere else. But also on a subjective level about people's identity. How did they make sense of these events? How did they understand the world around them? What was their... Um, operating software if you want to put it like that like what was the cultural filter through which they were making sense of the 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 information that they were dealing with on a daily basis um
1: it's good that you're for oral history because essentially that's what this is is, you it's a recorded oral history so (laughs) if you're like oral history sucks i'm like oh man we hired the wrong guy um one of the things i learned as i was here at the museum that i didn't Learned is the wrong word. One thing that I began to appreciate a lot more being here at the museum was the power of objects. Um, You know, I'd I'd been to museums, particularly like air and space here in D.C. and just just ate it up as I was an air and space nerd growing up and just seeing, you know, Chuck Yeager's Bell X1 or Apollo 11 or other things like that. And just never really kind of took that next step understanding why those things mattered so much to me you're now in a museum where there's a lot of objects that have some interesting backgrounds but the 9-11 museum you had some extraordinary they, they have extraordinary objects there was that something that you kind of understood going in or was there a better appreciation as you were there to seeing how objects can tell a story without even a label without anyone talking about them just by being there themselves absolutely um so, I had
2: a sense of the power of objects before I went in there, so back was when I was an undergrad, I done an internship in Glasgow museums, so my home city so I had a a bit of an appreciation about the power of objects from that experience. but at the nine eleven museum, you know we're dealing with a very emotive event, something where objects can literally move people to tears so it was certainly impressed on me much more there how powerful objects were. And I think one of the things that I underlined was, um, un- unfortunately in the academy we're quite often sent off into these um, uh, paths that we're we, we sort of pushed down. So historians, they deal with documents, you know, they don't speak to people anymore. They did originally, but they just deal with documents. Um, It's objects, okay, that's for the archaeologists, Um, you know, you go and sit and speak to people, or that's for the anthropologists. What happens if you just reject that disciplining process and you just say, what questions do I want to ask of the world? And then where does the information to answer those questions lie? And I guess that's the way that I try to approach it. And one of the most powerful objects that I have ever came across was a sword that was forged from World Trade Center steel so I was at this event um, I was invited to this veterans event in the villages in Florida Um, and it was uh, an event for veterans who were struggling with mental health with other issues Um, and one of the most profound and humbling parts of that whole weekend was they brought out what they termed the Spartan sword so this sword forged from World Trade Centre steel all of the veterans they either touched the sword or they touched someone who was touching the sword and then they they made an oath not to take their own lives unless they had spoken to their battle buddy first and i've got it on video and it's a very moving and profound encounter but think about it um you know at one level a piece of steel is a piece of steel is a piece of steel but it's the meaning that people give to the steel and i'm sure you've got you know a thousand stories having been here for 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 a number of years about the power of objects that you just can't get across in words or documents.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's just you sometimes just see people's jaws drop and just just staring. And, like, the label's not that long. Like, what, what do you, you – you've probably read it 30 <laughs> times by now. But, no, it's just they're, they're kind of thinking about what they're looking at, kind of the history behind what they're seeing. Um, so you talked about the, the Academy, and you talked about kind of the military side of things, the intelligence side of things. Um, a lot of things can be done with a history PhD, despite what my mom thought. <laughs> um, you are now, by your decision to work here, you're basically a museum professional. You can run away from it if you want to, but that's what you've decided <laughs> to do. I'm in the same boat. Uh, you know, We can all kind of go in a different direction, but you're, you're now a museum professional. So let me ask you the question that perhaps this is the toss-up, but it's a question that I haven't asked yet. Why here? Like, why is this the job that you focused on? Because your your resume, I mean, a little Inside Baseball listeners, uh, we had dozens apply to this job. Uh, and Andrew, like, is the last lone survivor of all of this. Um, and the reason is, is because he could do lots of things with his background and with, with what he has on his resume. So what made you choose this as what you wanted to do for the next several years? Okay. Okay. Um...
2: I mean there's a number of parts to that I guess one part would be the the job advertisement was perfectly suited to my skill set um so that's i guess <laughs> I guess that's the most um obvious answer to the question. The second part was to me, intelligence and espionage are such a fascinating window into much bigger questions so and, and, and I'm interested in so I'm interested in um, intelligence history I'm interested in modern history but I'm also interested in just the human story more generally how did we get here to where we are how did we split the atom and get to the stage where we could bring about our own destruction um, so if you look in that broader timeline History, uh intelligence is such an interesting part of that story. And Christopher Andrews' great book, uh a couple of years ago, The Secret World, he looks at that broad sweep. But through the lens of of intelligence and espionage, you can look at military history, you can look at um you know, Hannibal found out from some uh people that the lake Trasimene got really foggy in the morning and he used that to spring a trap and destroy a Roman army Um, so we can look at the whole sweep of history by looking at intelligence or espionage we can also look at politics we can look at political systems, political institutions we can look at ethics Um, how should we act how should we be governed you can use it to look at culture let's look at spy fiction let's look at spy movies the americans homeland you can use it to to look at say american society so we can look at gender relations we can look at race we can look at look at class um and so forth so i guess for me um the subject matter is a great window into so much other stuff. And in terms of the spy museum specifically, other than the fact that it played to my strengths, when I was at the nine eleven museum, I realised that the, the, the power of museums to get people to engage with the past, the power of museums as a source of historical literacy and um, to understand the world, and... Um, and it's a way to reach a broader audience and a way to just have a different experience, I guess.
1: So let me ask you one last question and then we'll wrap things up. And this is one I'm not gonna hold you to, because it's asking you to predict. Okay. So in the next couple of years, <laughs> I, I'm wondering if you can think of what kind of topics you might have to deal with in the future here at the spy museum. Things that, you know, you could say cyber and the guy like, oh, that's kind of, that's cheating a little bit. Like what, what, do, you, what do you foresee as being kind of the major intelligence topics moving forward in the next couple of years. Okay. Um,
2: I think some of the major intelligence topics would be looking at... um, maybe focusing a little bit more on the international aspect of the International Spy Museum. So within intelligence studies, so intelligence studies... the. The group of people that study intelligence, historians, political scientists and so forth. Within intelligence studies there's moves to look at different countries to get away from the Anglosphere. So I think internationalising it would be one part of it. I think artificial intelligence, I think um, technological developments are just so fascinating but so scary as well. Um, you could think about well, getting beyond the state in terms of looking at intelligence who is collecting so much information about us now, it's not necessarily the CIA, it's Google, it's Apple it's uh, Whole Foods It's you. you can look at somebody's consumption habits and make pretty good estimations of their level of education, their their longevity even um, so I think that those types of questions will be fascinating um, artificial intelligence um, what if you can get a, a chip put in your body that will detect proteins that are released when you get a heart attack now on one level why would you not want to get advance warning of a heart attack on another level that's really scary as really? well. So there's there's a brave new world of intelligence and technology is obviously an important part of that story and the technology is not standing still. Um, it's constantly changing and evolving and we're all going to have to be on our toes to, to keep up with what's going on.
1: Well, Andrew, thank you for taking the time uh, to talk to us here today. Uh, I wish you all... The best of luck uh, and all thank good you. fortune moving forward uh, as a historian and curator and host of SpyCast. Uh, for those of you who have been listening for, you know, whether it's a month or years, uh, it's been a lot of fun doing this. Uh, I imagine I will be a guest on the podcast once or twice moving into the future, but this is my final time signing off. So i like to thank, uh, he can edit this out if he wants to, but both Mike Mincy and Memphis Vaughn are AV extraordinaires for years of hard work making sure these podcasts get done. They're going to make sure that that Andrew is up and running and ready to rock moving forward. Uh, And everyone else that's been involved uh, in helping me uh, do this podcast because no one the hell knows what they're doing when they walk into this job. And so, I mean, Andrew's now understanding that (laughs) and realizing that. And it's just kind of, you make it up as you go along. And I think uh, it's been a lot of fun along the way. And uh, you'll hear from me again out there. I can't really be, uh, too open in public about what I'm doing next. Uh, but it won't take long before you hear where I've landed. So Andrew, appreciate the time, uh, listeners out there, Spycast, I appreciate all of you listening for so long and, uh, see y'all later. The international spy museum is a full 501 C three nonprofit. If you want to donate to the museum or if you're local and want to volunteer at the museum, Please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information.